Radio Mano Papachango. up ladies and gentlemen this is a really good episode this is a guy named david stansfield who i met it's one of one of these episodes i really like because it just sort of comes together one thing leads to another a conversation leads to this and another conversation leads to that and next thing you know i'm sitting in someone's house who i didn't know existed and uh they're opening up and telling me about their lives and wow what a life what an interesting guy um i met david actually we talk about how how we met each other through his son just a random conversation um hanging out in a in a club bar talking friend of a friend mentioned his dad and um next thing you know i'm hanging out in the kitchen talking to his dad david is um an expert on Arabic language, um, Islam, Arabic cultures. I'm sure if he hears me say this, he'll cringe, not considering himself to be an expert. But as far as I'm concerned, he's an expert. He's charmingly humble about his own gifts and experiences. But as you'll hear, they're fascinating and substantial. He's also uh, worked as a producer of uh, documentaries with, I think, he, I think in, um, BBC and PBS. Um, he talks about that and he's also an author and, uh, I must say something of a libertine, a man after my own heart, uh, a man who's lived a life full of experience and surprise and, uh, sensual and intellectual delights. Uh, someone I find fascinating and, and admirable. And I think you will too. Uh, I'm not going to rant on and on about uh, current events because it every once in a while we need a break from that stuff. I mean, my God, it just gets worse and worse. Um, so, yeah, that's it. And uh, this is the place in the podcast where the commercial would be. And you'll notice that there is no commercial other than the commercial for the podcast. So if you enjoy the podcast and you can afford it, please support it. You know how I won't go through that whole rigmarole again. I'll do it next episode. Uh, the only other thing I want to say is an apology to David and Pascal, his son, and anyone else who was waiting for this because we recorded it tw- quite a while ago. And I've been sitting on this one and several others just because the truth is I, I meet too many interesting people and I just love doing this podcast so I just keep recording them and recording them takes less time and effort than putting them together and getting them out so I end up with this backlog of fantastic conversations and it takes me sometimes months to get them out and when somebody has a book out or you know something that's really urgent I bump them up to the front of the line and then everybody else gets push back. So that's happened with David. And uh, uh, it certainly is not as as you'll, I'm sure agree. It has nothing to do with how interesting the conversations are. It's just that I'm trying to 
give preference to people who are who have a you know a book that's just come out or or something time sensitive so um anyway that's the last thing i wanted to say uh i really enjoyed this conversation and i'm sure you will as well i'm gonna play you out with a really sweet tune by kind red spirits i don't remember the name of the guy who sent me the email but he listens to the podcast and uh he's in minneapolis minnesota and he's in this band and uh i i just did a search of my emails for kind red spirits but all i could find was reference to uh, where i downloaded the music which is at the kind red spirits dot bandcamp dot com and this song is lonely road i thought it was appropriate for a man like david stansfield who has spent um a lot of his life on a lonely road traveling and uh contemplating so i hope you enjoy this and i will catch you soon thanks for listening to the podcast and thanks for your support in whatever way it materializes Oh
sounded so alone Dad, I'm really messed up this time I'm in jail and I'm losing my mind I said, son, I've been down that road before Some lessons can't be learned until they close the door And I can't judge for something that I've done sitting in a beautiful apartment in Malibu, California with a view of the ocean as every apartment of Malibu should have a view should of have, the ocean. Yes, that's yeah. right. uh, with David Stansfield, I, who is an author and uh, we're going to find out a, a lot more. I love the way this particular conversation came together. Um, it's like I have famous people on here sometimes. Yeah, I, I have to I go through their some. agents and all that. <clears throat> but I, I really enjoyed this because I was just hanging out yeah. at Soho House in, oh, yes. in Malibu course, yeah, uh, yeah. with some friends, and yeah. uh, your son was at the table, and uh, Pascal and I started talking, and Pascal mentioned that you'd written several books and uh, a bit about your education. So. Um, Let's start there. You're you're British originally, obviously, yeah, yeah. and uh, you did you studied you studied Arabic or yes, Arab culture, yeah, yeah. and how how did that happen? Oh, that's an interesting story. I think um, this was when I was nineteen twenty in England, and every summer, like the birds of summer, I call them, I, these young and often very beautiful um, young Germans and French and Italian and Spanish would come over. Um, and the boys and girls, but so all the local boys wanted to do was to beat them up because you know for the English wogs begin at Calais, so as soon as these foreigners he, he, they beat them up every mm. Saturday night. But I immediately <laughs> my, my gravitated to them and went up with a lot of them and I decided to pick up a bit of Swedish, a bit of German, mm. but most of them were French because France is right, right. We were on the south coast of England, it was only thirty miles away. Yeah. Um, so I learned French. I studied it at school, learned nothing, and then I became fluent. It's the only language I speak at home now is French. Really? Um, anyway, um, one of the French girls I fell in love with uh, was a Moroccan and uh, called Yasmin. Um, and just as he was leaving, we'd have spoken in French. My French had got good enough for that, all the time in French. And then she had to go back to Morocco. She wrote something on a postcard for me, you know, I, I love you dearly. And then she, then she started to paint something, I thought. And I thought, that's so beautiful. She's mm -hmm. going from right to left. And I said, what's mm -hmm. that? She said, it's writing. 
I said, well, what? I'd never seen beautiful writing like that. Um, and she said, yeah, it's my second language, or my third language. Um, and w what does it mean? And she said, I love you, I miss you very much. And I got so fascinated by the look of it and the sound of her voice that I'd never heard speaking Arabic. Because it has sounds, you know, it's 28 consonants and they have wonderful sounds. The most interesting sound is the H, there are two H's. It's a her and ha. Mm. Ha means soul or breath. And it is literally breath. Ah, oh, monopoietic. Yeah, uh, it's yeah. sort of multiple. Has, has a, that's, and that's the magic of Arabic, apart from all the beauty of the writing, um, is that, um, sorry, I'm, I'm getting bogged down. There's so many things. Um, the, the, the podcast uh, is called Tangentially Speaking. Is, uh, yes, I, so I'm tangentially. <laughs> feel free. There's no, no need to focus. But the beautiful thing about, the, the, one of the beautiful things about the Arabic language is that um, it's absolutely hypnotizing. For example, the example I always give, um, the first surah of the Quran is Bismillahi Rahman Rahim, mm. Alhamdulillah, Malik Yomadin, Iyaka Na'abadu. Now, once you know what that, uh, you know, that is completely hypnotizing for me and for any Arab mm. speaker. I mean, you just, and what it means is so prosaic and almost boring. I mean, somebody means in the name of God, the merciful, God be praised. You know, bless us with your mercy and your so on, and follow the straight road. And if you don't follow it, then you, you know, we have blessed you in allowing you to follow the straight road. It says at the end, um, except for those we are angry with, and, and those who, who have strayed from the straight road. Incidence. It's sort of pathetic, you know. Yeah. But um, but the sounds of it are the sounds captivating. So it completely overwhelms the meaning. Mm. Uh, which also means that, for example, when Saddam Hussein was doing his speeches, uh, it was God speaking. Every time anyone speaks classical uh, Arabic, it's sort of God, mm. because it hasn't changed. You know, because if you are a Muslim, when Muhammad, um, the Gabriel, the angel Gabriel came down and talked to Muhammad supposedly, and he he didn't write; he was illiterate, but it was, he got it written down eventually. Well, that was God speaking, and he's only spoken on those few occasions to Muhammad, nobody else in the history of the world. So it froze, that instant. And if you read, say, the Al-Ahram, the, the Egyptian newspaper, today, it could have been written in 632 AD. Really? There's no difference. They may have, a few neologisms might have crept in, but... So grammatically and the pronunciation yeah. it exactly. is exactly it is frozen in, in time it's the oldest huh. i think there's no other language in the world i may be wrong right. that hasn't changed because if you compare it with yeah. english for example sure. anglo-saxon in 600 yeah. we don't understand a single word of it right and even chaucer is, is it's even chaucer's yeah. tricky yeah. Um, yeah so that's one incredible thing but also they wrote by hand so all of uh, in those days mm. and all of the letters joined together when you write by hand you know mm. in cursive right. their version of and then printing presses came along and it had still had to look by hand it still does look is written but and you have three keys for each letter so they can join the beginning and the middle and the end together into a word oh, wow. 
I didn't know. And they have no vowels either. No vowels. No. So if you see, no, the equivalent the example I give always um, if you see, um, I can't think of one now, but um, somebody says, uh, you know, yeah, I've forgotten the example, but, but there are English words, for example, if you, if you remove the vowels, they could mean four or five different things. Mm. Beak, bake, right. book. Right. So all you're going to get in Arabic is BK. So you have to um, sort of uh, figure out from the context how it actually means, it means book, and it doesn't mean beak. Right. But that, that means it's carrying you along in a, in a strange way, and you don't know what's going to happen next in your reading Arabic. Because it's all gathering it's all, yeah, in this wave yeah, of meaning. Yeah, it's hypnotic huh. and difficult, and it's pure poetry. Interesting. Interesting how it so sounds from what you're saying that it's so open to interpretation and context exactly, is yeah. such a large part of it, which gives me an impression of fluidity. Yes. But then on the other hand, you're saying yeah. it hasn't changed in 1500 years or something, yeah, which yeah. is rigidity. It's a strange juxtaposition yes. of. It's all full of contrary. And the whole Arab world, because I lived in the Arab world with Palestinians back in the 60s. Um, and everything is full of con wild contradictions. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, for example, you know, I was used to going to the pub as a young English student. Uh, when, I, when I went to university, part of the course was to, was to spend one entire summer with an Arab family. So you studied the Arabic, Arabic language or culture? Or what all, was of it, all, all of it. Was, just yeah. Arabic studies? It's called modern Arabic studies at Durham I went to, then I went to Cambridge, and mm -hmm. I went to the Sorbonne, and then I went to Toronto, U of T in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And what years were you uh, in Cambridge? I, I went up to Durham in 59. 59, okay. And then I think the second year, in 61, it was my moment when I had to go and find some family I could stay with to brush up my colloquial, because there's classical and then there's colloquial Arabic, yeah. which varies region by region. Anyway, um, when was the, the Suez crisis? Oh, that was before that there was a Suez crisis, I yeah. think. I, I'm, I'm losing my memory. Nasser and... Um, yeah, so, so the Arabic was, I mean, not like now, obviously, but I imagine it was a focus of the, the intelligence services. Yeah. It was an important yeah. part of the world. Oil was already a big issue. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, yes. Major power struggles. Were you thinking of going into intelligence work? Uh, no, but that, that's, um, maybe Pascal started to tell you the story. Um, <clears throat> when I gr graduated from Cambridge, actually, um, I got a phone call from some outfit in London. It was the commercial Middle East trading company or something. And then I went along suspiciously bland. somewhere in, in, in a fancy part of London. And you knock on the door and somebody says, oh, oh, and they said actually oak up, because what you say in Cambridge is oak up, which means don't come in. My, the oak oh. level of my door is up. Oh. And he said oak up. And I thought, well, this can't be true. but. Anyway, I pushed in, and the door just opened, and I pushed in, and everything was covered in green baize. It was, and I was already beginning to laugh almost. You know, I'd just seen the first James Bond film. <laughs> and I thought, oh, wow, it can't be this uh, silly. <laughs> yeah. But wait. <laughs> and then <clears throat> I, I, was, I went in, and this guy talked to me, and he says, we've been, you know, we've been 
were not actually <laughs> the commercial trading company or something. Um, were actually MI6, which is equivalent to the CIA, um, and we've been watching you for some time because uh, you're an Arabic scholar, and there are very few, very, very few people study Arabic, mm. particularly in those days. Um, so we're interested in you. <coughs> and I said, oh, good, thinking of James Bond. So, but do I have to climb up and down drain pipes and take microfilms? Oh, no, no, my dear chap. <laughs> You're much too expensively educated. No, you will swan, they like that word. You will swan around the Middle East to cocktail parties in Baghdad and Cairo and Beirut and just keep your ears open. You'll mm. be a second secretary, supposedly, but actually you'll be a, a, an agent. But you never do anything dangerous because we have d what we call expendables for that. And they go into the prisons, into death row. I don't know if they had the death row then, but you go into you know, really desperate thugs. They are the James Bond. Yeah. And People the funny thing. Nothing to lose. Yeah, and uh, they're very tough and everything, but certainly not the Arabists, they're not going to risk anything. So it's all, Ian Fleming was just playing games with people. You yeah, know. yeah. Yeah. But the funny thing was when we moved here, there's a shop in Santa Monica which is just for British people. It sells all the British stuff, you know, the Kit Kats and things that you can't normally get. Um, and the guy who runs it is full of stories and I, I, I talked about MI6 and all that. Um, and he said, well, you know, I actually know James Bond. I mean, the guy he, who was modeled him, he's a taxi driver in London now. <laughs> really? So he did, he did survive because they, they had a short lifespan normally. Yeah. But, but anyway, he, he just said, you know, you will swan around back in this little office with the green bays. He said you will swan around and then, but there are a couple of tests we need to do. You know, the most important test is a beautiful country house on the south coast overlooking the, um, La Manche, overlooking the um, channel, mm -hmm. and um, uh, we just wanted you to eat, and I knew what that meant, which fork, do you know which fork to use, mm -hmm. and I sort of came from an upper middle class supposed family, so I did, you know, and I passed, passed that with flying cover, c colors, you know, it was a big test. Mm -hmm. Then there was a secondary test to talk about politics, and that was the funniest one, with a group of other potential MI6 people young people and um, so they got to talking about the they said to me actually at one point well, so what do you think about the Bay of Pigs that was that uh, right. I said what's that and they said well, well you know Kennedy and I said who's Kennedy I, because I was just that was my you know running up to girls time I had no time to read a newspaper oh, really? <laughs> I was much too busy with the au pair girls in Cambridge uh -huh. I mean it's a full-time job yeah. <laughs> Yeah, if you're dedicated. F fucking your mind out in Cambridge. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that so was the end of that. that so my career really? ended after th three days. Because of your lack of uh, no, I mean, awareness. They'd never come across such abysmal ignorance. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you got the forks right. Yeah. yeah, and I can use it on my resume, you know, recruited by MI6. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and people lap it up. Yeah. But I, the sad story that goes with it, I had a colleague at university who was gay, and I, he was so attractive, I thought of becoming gay myself. But we, we spent a lot of time together, and he was also recruited, but he wasn't uh, an idiot. Uh, <laughs> and so he actually became an uh -huh. agent, and he disappeared from you. It was somewhere in the Middle East, and we lost contact until I read the Daily Mirror one day, and his picture was on the cover. He'd been exposed as a spy for the other side, 
because he'd been discovered, you know, outed by the other side. They never said who. Right. Soviet Union, I suppose. Um, and because he was outed, he was instantly disowned. You know, his life was destroyed virtually. They didn't kill him. Right. But he stayed in the Middle East and eventually got a job with an oil company or something, so he survived. But, but uh, the blatant, uh, you know, uh, cruelty. But that's standard practice. Alan Turing. Oh, yeah. like Ames even worse. Yeah, they yeah. castrated him. Uh, chemical castration. Yeah. I, st I spent a, a lot of time on Alan Turing. Yeah. Because I was I was brought up down the street from oh, really? uh, Bletchley. Oh, which was where they were doing the coke breaking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wrote a book about that too. It's uh, it's a strange thing, and I, I I hope I don't come across as typical ignorant American, but homophobia in the UK seems to be it's confusing to me because there's yeah. there's so much homophilia yeah. as well, you know, in the the educational system. You yeah, know, exactly. Yes, yeah. I mean the the the. Well, uh, the spankings and the, you know, there's there's a lot of sort of ritualistic yeah, yeah. Uh, homoeroticism that seems to be built into upper class British yes, society. Yes, complete hypocrisy, which goes so the cruelty with cruelty. So strange. <coughs> well, that's why they're such good spies, the British, because you know most of the famous British spies, went, or went, they didn't go to Cambridge, they went to Oxford, yeah, and they were gay, right, um, and they went over to the other side, um, all of them almost to a man, I mean, it's uncanny, you know, yeah. because they were used to being in the closet and hiding right. themselves. Right. So they made perfect spies. They were trained from birth yeah. to pretend to be some what you're not, you know? It's interesting. I, I just last week was watching um, Bill Maher. You ever yes, watched his show? Yes, a lot. Yeah, Did you yeah. see the, uh, what's his name, the, the uh, Tom Gunn, the fashion guy, was on? No, I didn't see that. He's no. a he's a gay yeah. fashion designer, yeah. and um, in the there, there's a section they do where the program's over, but they just do it online. It's overtime, they call it, where they yeah. answer questions from the audience or something. Yeah. And Tom Gunn told a story about how his father was sort of the right-hand man to um, the head of the FBI, the longtime head of the FBI, I forget his name, uh, J. Edgar Hoover. Oh, Hoover, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he, when he was a kid, he and his sister were invited to visit his father in, in the FBI headquarters. You know, they went in with dad. Yeah. And they, they went and they met this famous actor, Vivian Lee, I think it may have been, yeah. who was in J. Edgar Hoover's office. Really? And, oh. and I guess Tom and his sister were seven, eight, nine years old, yeah, something yeah. like that. And then years later, they thought back on it and they said, why would Vivian Lee have been in J. Edgar Hoover's office? And where was J. Edgar Hoover? Mm. Yeah. And then someone researched it and checked the FBI logbooks mm. for... And Vivian Lee had never been to the FBI headquarters, and I oh, may be yeah. confusing Vivian Lee with another actress. But, but so uh, he's thinking it was J. Edgar Hoover in drag. Oh, I was just going to say because he was gay, right? Yeah, yeah, <clears throat> or at least transvestite. Oh, but yeah. And then Tom, <clears throat> and they were talking about that, and Tom said, you know, I suspect my father was gay as well. Yeah. And when I think back on the people from the office and the would hang out with my father, I think they were all gay. Yeah. Well, and so maybe lot, there's this lot, similar yes. kind of thing, and it, you explain the dynamic yeah. behind it, this 
being accustomed to hiding your true identity. Because we went to these, you know, if you could, parents could afford it, they sent us to public schools, which, which means private. Yeah. Everything is backwards in England, right. deliberately. Uh, so <laughs> deliberately pri private schools confuse the foreigners. Is that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah the, the other trick they play on American tourists in Oxford, they. You know, somebody will come and says, "Where's Bal Oil?" You know, it was Balliol. <laughs> Why would you think of? Or what's in, is another one that everybody gets wrong. Anyway, Dor they have these trick Dorchester. Uh, yeah, but there's another college in Oxford or Cambridge. I can't think of now. But anyway, oh Mary Magdalene. You know, it's spelled Mary. It's Magdalene College. Mm. I think Oxford. It's pronounced Magdalene. <laughs> yeah. People there laugh themselves yeah. <laughs> silly yeah. uh, when some non-English person says, "You know, can you tell me how to get the magnet?" But where? <laughs> yeah, yeah, a little trick. It's a trick. But anyway, I forgot. Oh, I know. Uh, the, these private schools were boys only oh, until right, very right. recently. And although I was never actually raped by one of the masters, uh, it went on a lot, and there were a lot of them, the masters, so called. Uh, were drawn to that line of work, yeah, because <laughs> a lot of pretty young boys, right? Um, but one thing was that I also wrote about in another book was um, I was beaten once, uh, and uh, you know, which is bad enough. But you first of all you have to take your trousers off, and then you have to take your underwear off. And I drawn, I was trying to impress some some rugger hearties in prep. You had to stay t for prep till nine o'clock at night. They were in a and so I drew a big penis. I thought that was I'd be like be one of them. They think it's funny. But the prefect who was controlling this prep room took me straight up to the housemaster. He said, "Take your trousers down and turn half left, and now and take your." And then I thought, isn't it funny? The penalty for drawing a penis is to expose <laughs> your naked bottom. Yeah. I mean, that's more hypocrisy. Yeah. And he was enjoying it. Obviously, that's one of the reasons he taught that. Yeah. He saw a lot of bottoms. <laughs> a strange species we I mean, are. Yeah, isn't it weird? Yeah. Um, so you, so you, was the was the did your family have a, an attraction to other cultures? Were your parents travelers, or was there, um, or was this just something that started? With no, actually, you? I think it's in the genes because, um, as you know, the. Um, uh, the English and the Germans have been very close, particularly the royal family, you yeah. know, for hundreds of years. So there was that connection, but also my grandfather, I think he was a Queen's messenger under Victoria, maybe great-grandfather. So he, w he lived in France half the time, and uh -huh. he was completely bilingual, so there was that, but, but not with my parents. My right. father, I think, was a closet homosexual, because uh, he was in World War One, you know. Yeah. Um, and he, he's, it almost destroyed him, and, and he, his regiment, I think he was almost the only survivor in his regiment, so he felt he was riddled with guilt. Yeah. And he used to tell me that I died when I climbed out of the trenches, and he, he became an alcoholic. Mm. But then I found his letters he was writing to his mother, he was only 17 when he joined up, and he was talking about this other young man all the time. Mm. So I, I wrote a book about taking off from that and you're thinking, well, maybe, suppose he had been my father's um, lover, then what, what would have happened in our family? Yeah. My, and my brother was gay and we had these terrible, he was seven years older than me, he died of AIDS. Uh, we had these terrible family quarrels when my, my 
father would suddenly explode and he, he would say fucking and he wouldn't have said fag I think and they would fight it was awful um, but he got so angry my father that when I was did this book and thinking about it I think well maybe that's why he was so angry yeah uh, and your brother was was out he was uh, yeah he was out by that time he he, yeah. beca- he was we were Protestants not allowed to talk to Catholics in those days talk mm-hmm. about um, being bigoted um, but just to shock everybody my brother became Catholic when he was 15 but at the same time he was outing himself you know and uh, so that he was gay which was not easy to do uh, back in the 50s though. yeah yeah it's funny uh, you know talking <coughs> about how things are the opposite of what they appear to be I, I have a lot of gay friends and uh, it's occurred to me repeatedly that if the definition of manliness mm-hmm. is standing up for who you are and being yeah, unashamed yeah. in the face of public yeah. ridicule right, right. some of the most manly masculine people I know are gay yeah exactly, exactly. You know, the, the courage well, look at Alan Turing you couldn't get more courageous yeah. than him yeah and back then it was really bad as you know um, yeah. well and, and in your brother's time as well yeah. I mean the, the the amount of ridicule and I mean even within the family and still yeah. even today yeah. I mean people are kids are kicked out of their family and they're homeless because they yeah, you yeah. Know, had the courage to be honest about who they are it's exactly, unbelievable yeah. yeah and another funny thing about gay um, I've always been interested in that obviously because of my brother uh, one day I was in San Francisco and I was in a, getting drunk in some bar and I saw the most beautiful creature I th- thought I'd ever seen in my life at that point, black. So we got talking and got drunk together, went back and then she took her clothes off and it was, she had a penis. And uh, what shocked me was not that she had a penis, is that I wasn't, sh- uh, that it didn't matter. Mm. I thought I'm attracted to this person, so we made love. Mm. Um, and I thought, well, what's all the fuss about? Yeah, she's beautiful. She, he, whatever is beautiful. We're attracted. Why don't we make love? Why shouldn't we make love? Right. I only did that once, but that was what shook me. Right. So you know that uh, there was a film about about the IRA, a really good movie. Yeah, yeah. And he gets the, he's shocked by the same the experience. Game. Yeah. The when the penis game. is exposed. Yeah. He's shocked, and I thought, well, that's not true. wasn't true for me. Yeah. I thought, who cares? Yeah, I, it's it's an interesting question. I was just talking with a friend about this the other day. The the first time that I was in a sexual situation with two women, and neither of them had ever been with a woman before. Mm-hmm. And um, when I woke up in the morning, my first thought was, "Oh boy, there's going to be some interesting tension yeah. that, that we're going to have to navigate over breakfast here." You <laughs> right, know? right, right. And um, and I. I was the last to wake up and I went out and the two women were sitting on the terrace and they looked at me and they were laughing and they said, so where's the coffee? You going to make coffee or what? And they were totally relaxed. And I thought, now, if I, if that had been me, another guy and a woman and we'd had, I would be questioning my entire identity. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'd be so traumatized. Like, wait, am I gay? Have I been lying to myself all these years? Who am I? And the women were just like, where's the coffee, man? Like totally relaxed about it. Yeah. I have a good friend of mine. His name's Stanley Krippner. He's um, in his late eighties. 
at this point, but we've, he's been one of my closest friends for 20 years or so. And uh, he's very, his sexuality is very interesting. He doesn't really even think in terms of men and women. It's just a non-issue yeah. for him. Yeah. And I think it's always been that way. Yeah. So, you know, if you ask him if he's gay or straight, it, it's, the question doesn't even make sense. And it's very interesting how, um, you know, we think we know what we mean by these words. Right. And yet when you start getting into other cultural contexts, right. suddenly things start shifting around. Right. Like in Papua New Guinea, there's my favorite example of this. There are tribes there that believe that semen contains the essence of masculinity. Yeah. So the young boys who want to grow up to be the most fearsome warriors yeah. ingest as much semen as they possibly can yes. because yeah. it they, yeah, propels I, I them into manhood. About that at one point. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. so we look at that and say, well, that's homosexual behavior. And yeah. they look at it and say, no, that's, that's you know, those, those are the most macho boys there. They're growing up right. to be... Well, isn't it, isn't it true that the ancient Greeks, that they had a male lover mm. to give them their education. Right. They might go on to marry a woman, right. but it, it was almost irrelevant in many ways. Yeah. Well, you've researched it much more than I have, yeah. but it's, that was the same for the Romans and, and the Greeks. Yeah, yeah. And they talk about a lover, but, or even Shakespeare. It's mm. sonnets, people still argue. Right. Is he talking to a boy or a girl? It seems. Who cares? It didn't well, make any difference. And also, I mean, as, <clears throat> as you probably know, until I think at the late 19th century, homosexual referring to a person yeah, exactly. didn't it exist exactly. it was a homo yeah. it was an adjective a homosexual yeah. behavior or act yeah. or something yeah it's it's all very so this leads to one of my favorite characters historical uh, right. people richard burton the the explorer oh yes and the yes. great yeah, linguist yeah. yes um, have you have you researched? I, I would love. I, I keep thinking, you know, when well, he, a, he was the first and maybe best translator of the Thousand and One Nights. Exactly, and yeah. he and he spoke Arabic so well that he yeah. went to Mecca undercover. Yeah, it's like Lawrence of Arabia, another one. Yeah, gay. Man. Yeah, unbelievable. And he was also an expert in sexuality, Richard Burton. Yeah, yeah. He translated, I think, the Kama Sutra. He was the first to translate that. Yeah, he, and he. His sexuality was very ambiguous and, and right. wide-ranging, and unfortunately, when he died, his wife destroyed all his writings on oh, sexuality, oh, threw yeah. them into the fire. One of the great, right. you know, it's, for me, it's right up there with the, the burning of the library in Alexandria. It's yeah, yeah. He was all over the world. He spoke twenty-some languages. He's amazing oh, really? genius. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But, but it's it's also like Lawrence of Arabia in many ways. Who mm. people are pretty sure he was if not gay, bisexual, yeah. because a lot of Arabs are uh, gay. Well, that's, I wanted to ask you about that. Again, you know, the cultural context. Yeah. The, my understanding of, I've had a few um, lovers who were women who were um, Muslims, and uh, including a Moroccan, beautiful Moroccan woman, Afaf. Um, mm. But mm. Uh, my understanding is that our sense that um, uh, that it's a restrictive religion around sexuality is totally wrong. Yeah, everything is backwards. Because, yeah. you know, under the, the great golden age, as they call it, of Harun al-Rashid in Baghdad around 800, 900, you know, that was the, the biggest, the most important civilization on earth. And yeah, then, the first great And he was gay. Harun al-Rashid was gay. Oh, really? And his, his sort of uh, closest friend was Abu Nuwas, who is the greatest erotic poet in, in, in Arabic. 
I mean, so erotic was ridiculous. Mm. I mean, went way beyond. And then you read about that, and you know, um, and the long tradition of erotic. There's much more erotic poetry written in Arabic than in English, mm. for example. Uh, mountains of it, and very good. Somewhere. So that, but they can do that at the same time. But it's just that the last, th you know, what's happening now. It all really dates from the. 1970s with oil and the, these ghastly people running Saudi Arabia yeah. uh, when they got all their money and they opened all these madrasas all over the world yeah. and then they began to brainwash people you can only read the Quran and they completely misinterpret deliberately the Quran um, and then because when I stayed with this Arab family the Palestinians it was in East Jerusalem and it was divided back in 61 mm. um, <clears throat> I still to this day I don't know if they're Muslims or not because uh, a lot of, not a lot, but the 5% at least Palestinians are Christians. But nobody cared. I never saw them going to the mosque. Mm. But now, and the women d didn't even wear headscarves. They didn't want to. I mean, some did, but yeah. the rate did. But the religion didn't, didn't have anything like the renewed hold, this Wahhabi, you know, this Do awful Wahhabi. Why, why did the Saudis decide how is it in their interest to have this radical well because uh, Abdul Wahhab where the word Wahhabism comes from I think it was back in the 18th century when the Saudis were just you know, camel drivers yeah poverty very poor uh, they came across this preacher Abdul Wahhab who talked about going back to the roots of Islam but way beyond actually and you know, much stricter than the Quran and for some reason they were attracted by it so they adopted it <clears throat> and it sort of lay dormant because they didn't have any money <clears throat> until they got the oil thing in the 70s mm. they became billionaires but they never forgot th this Wahhabism thread running through the ruling class of the Saudis and, and they spent all this money and, and brainwashed an entire generation of Muslims but it, you know Having worked on a lot of a lot of books recently, little books about ISIS, um, I've met a lot of Muslims in the last couple of years. I mean, they're all perfectly nice, balanced, and even if they were a headscarf at most, but I mean that's irrelevant. This, if they like a headscarf, but then you check out the Quran. What does it say about how what women should? Well, there's no mention of a headscarf anywhere. The only mention is do not go out in public with bare breasts and bare vaginas. Well, even we today don't normally, women don't go out displaying their breasts and their vaginas. But, but that's all. There's nothing else. So just nothing no, else. No, no public nudity is. Yeah, but there was no, no burkas or headscarves. They didn't mention that. Right. Uh, what what the, that was the great influence on for this clothing nonsense on later after the Quran came down was it was in Persia they were covered up in Greece they were covered up wearing more veils and harems and all that but that wasn't an Arab thing at all and it's not part of Islam other than four wives but that's because because of the short you know that so many men got killed off so, mm. so it's a response to a response. Uh, high mortality rate yeah, because of yeah. war but again on, on the thing about Everything is, nothing is what you think it is in the Arab world. You know, we think now it's violent. But when I was there, it was, it was so safe. I mean, it's the safest place I've ever been in my life, then and since. Um, 
and one of my friends, I was stayed there for four months, one of my guy became a close friend, he said, I said, is it true? I mean, there's no crime here? Is that, be is that because of you're scared? It's Sharia law? He said, no, we don't have Sharia law. We have Swiss law, actually, um, in, in Palestine. Um, I say, but is it true that nobody ever steals? He said, okay, let's do a test. We've got a 10 dinars, a couple of dollars or more, isn't it? And there's a bench outside our house, uh, just opposite the Damascus Gate, it was. Uh, and he said, leave that this morning on the bench and I bet you it'll be there this evening. And of course it was. People do not steal. And so that is, you know, it's unless we go in and run and fuck everything up as we did, uh, mainly us, and not just Americans, but English and French. It was a remarkably successful by and large society. Certainly when I was there, I was in a sort of, mm. e even though they were, you know, under the heel of Israel and all of the problems with Israel. but. But I even said, but you don't like Jews, do you? And they said, what do you mean? And we brought up with Jews, our best friends were Jews. It's this whole partition business of 48 and all that, you know. And it's turned each side against the other side. But we are Semitic, I mean. And that's the other yeah. joke word, you know, anti-Semitic. Well, anybody who speaks Arabic is a Semite. It's just a linguistic term. So, mm. so if you're anti-Semitic, you're anti-Arab. Interesting. <laughs> that's equally, just as you're anti-Jew, you know. Oh. So yeah, it's all nonsense. If, and if I speak Arabic, it's actually I'm rusty now. But I'm a I'm a Semite because <laughs> I speak Arabic. Right. Yeah. It's all. It's the only the meaning of it. But nobody ever uses it like that. It's just it's been just relegated just for Jews. Yeah. So have most of you? You've written how many books? Eighteen, actually. Eighteen books. I just can't stop. It's a it's an addiction. <laughs> <laughs> Is the addiction in the publishing of the book or no the they never get published of everyone the turns them down yeah which is a tiny bit frustrating but i still go on anyway you know i've had some wonderful reviews from people you know i put them up on amazon but mm. and i've sent out i think to a total of 500 agents so far and they'll say no it doesn't grab me it doesn't grab me I don't like this don't like that. and i think it's partly the fault of amazon you know because it's nice on amazon you can self-publish yeah, but there are thousands of books every day are self-published. Yeah, and if I were an agent, I would, you know, take one of my books, because if you're not known, or unless you've done as you did, you know, you, obviously your book was successful and published. But it's non-fiction. You know, my, most of my books are fiction. Yeah. Um, I I mean, people say that I write well, but, but anyway, something, uh, if I were an agent, I wouldn't take me on because it's cost so much mm. to, if you're not famous or it doesn't catch on like Fifty Shades of Grey or something. Right, right. Because I have a friend who just died recently, Paul Armand, who's a top Canadian TV producer, and he wrote a wonderful saga, he's Canadian. Um, uh, of books of novels and they were picked up by an agent but then you discover he's not well enough known to get the agent to do anything mm. so the agent did zero promotion zero publicity and he had he had a, quite a bit of money so he just organized his own book tour yeah but they wouldn't do anything because he's not known that's, that's what they expect you to do I, I had did you have to do that as well but yeah yours was it, obviously took off it took yeah. off um, but Honestly, through no uh, assistance from my publisher, right? Um, they 
In fact, I had this conversation with um, an editor when the book was coming out, and, and I said, uh, you know, are you guys going to spend any money on advertising? Are you doing anything? Yeah. And he said, no, uh, what happens is that, you know, the, the publisher won't spend any money on advertising unless um, we see that the book is doing well through word mm. of mouth. And then if it's selling, then we'll, you know. Yeah. And I was like, okay. Um, and then, as it turns out, I, I was very, it's just very lucky happenstance, but uh, a guy named Dan Savage looked at the book and he's a columnist, a sex advice columnist, and he really enjoyed it. And uh, so yes. he said, I'm going to tell everyone. And yeah. he has millions of readers. And oh, that's what you need. So yeah, it was, yeah. he really blasted it and then it took off from there. But so then I went back. It, it was a New York Times bestseller for yes, a week. It wonderful. was on the list. Yeah. And I went back to the publisher and said, look, we're on the New York mm. Times. And, oh, congratulations. I said, so now you're going to put some money into advertising. He said, oh, no, it's not necessary now. It's, it's oh, doing really well. You can't win like, either. What are you doing here? Come on. This is yeah. bullshit. It's a catch-22. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm... I'm um, I'm not a fan of the publishing industry, no, no, although no. I've been very lucky personally, but I've, what I've seen, it's the most dysfunctional industry I've ever had yeah, that's any a, insight a, into. Particularly by my friend Paul Arman, who had so many terrible experiences. Yeah, he told me how awful it was. Yeah, they, yeah it's... Uh, and they didn't even edit his books, probably. I ended up editing his books. Oh, really? So I rather like doing that. I mean, they just did a, they just did a you know, a, copy edit just correcting commas and things but, yeah. but nobody did any proper in-depth you know right. you know you're contradicting yourself here or right is, um, yeah yeah they expect <clears throat> you to provide them with a finished product yeah at this point which is you know it's a funny thing historically because you look at um, you know in the 60s and 70s if someone wrote a best-selling book in, in yeah. those years they made a lot of money right, right. now it, you, you can it can be a bestseller, but that doesn't mean you're oh, making yeah. a lot of money exactly. because the the total market is actually much smaller. Yeah, fewer people read books now, so um, they you know back in in the 50s, 60s, 70s, they would cultivate an author. They you know, yeah, a, pu yeah. a publisher would say, okay, we know yeah. your first three books aren't going to sell, but we think you know four, five, and six are probably going to yeah. do something. So mm -hmm. they'll. They yeah. would keep you going, and they, you know, book tours and publicity and all this kind of stuff. That's all gone now. Now, in, in fact, in many cases, they want you to hire a private editor with your own money. Yeah. They want you to hire a publicist. They want you to put together your own tour and do yeah. all that kind of stuff. So that's all coming out of the author's pocket. Yeah. But the contract is exactly the same as it always was. Yeah. You still get the same ridiculous 8.25% royalty rate on yeah. paperbacks and yeah. you know it's like uh, the the whole relationship has changed but the numbers stay the same yeah it's crazy yeah, yeah. so yeah. i i think it's a it's a it's an industry that's about to collapse do you do you think it really is that readership is really going down i i'd read both sides it's saying so actually it's not bad that's what i've read that yeah. i mean <clears throat> talking over 30 years so i don't know oh maybe you know, over 30 yeah just recently it's because of Kindle and so on. Yeah, they yeah. thought that the Kindle was going to kill the paper book, but apparently the paper no. books yeah. are still selling pretty steadily. Because one one book I did, which is the one about my father, it's called One Last Great Wickedness. Um, 
I, I, to promote it, um, I put it up for free. You know, you can put it on Amazon up for a week free, mm. the Kindle. Right. And I got 40,000 downloads. Really? But still didn't, didn't get me any. <laughs> they were free. I mean, I didn't make any money. Yeah. But out of the downloads, I maybe got 400 purchases, but I was selling them at 2.99. Right. But even that didn't help. And the closest I got to anything, to a deal, there was some big deal, apparently, Hollywood uh, agent who liked the MyBridge book, but he didn't read it because agents don't read. But his, his, <laughs> his people yeah. uh, read it and loved it, loved it, loved it. And then, uh, so he said, well, just one thing. Uh, well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna call the studios right now because it's a movie, you know, this is a movie. And the next time we meet, it will be for me to give you a check. So I thought, oh, finally. He said, I just, one thing, I just want to send it to a New York publisher to make sure that somebody can pick it up as a book as well, as, as the screenplay was, you know. And then I didn't hear from him for weeks. <laughs> and I eventually got through to him. He's, and I said, well, what happened to this New York publisher? Oh, he didn't like it. And that was the end of that. And yeah. I checked out the publisher. It was a young man who worked with his mother <laughs> doing gardening books. This is literally true. <laughs> Yeah. And the gardening book, he didn't like Bybridge. Yeah. And that was it. And, yeah. and the guy never, never returned my yeah. course. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, I've been around this, this track yeah. you know, 30 times probably with yeah. Sex at Dawn because it was a bestseller. It's about yeah. sex. It's yeah. juicy. So yeah. oh, all these producers, they get all excited and, oh, my God, it's going to be great. And, and I'm, I'm so jaded at this point. Yeah, yeah me too. <laughs> because it's not only that they they overstate uh, the possibility yeah, yeah, that yeah. something's going to happen. But as you said, once it becomes clear to them that whatever deal they envisioned isn't going to happen, they don't even have the decency to call or send no. an email saying, hey, sorry, it didn't work out, this and that happened. They just disappear. Yeah, they just don't pick up the phone. It's unbelievable. Yeah. It's so, so rude and, and inhuman. I, I actually just wrote a... <clears throat> I, I went around this track again with a producer and, and getting into it I said to him look I don't want to waste any time I've done this a lot you guys you know are full of talk and right. nothing and he said no no look this is different we do this you know and he showed me some things that he had done and yeah it was interesting and and the same thing happened yeah and then I, I just wrote an email saying you know you're just as bad as the rest of them right it's been two months you haven't yeah, you know, you just disappear. You don't. You, I understand it's probably not going to happen, but have the decency to write to me and yeah. say, "Hey, sorry, man, it didn't work out." Just yeah, and it's, it's, it's the same with screenplays. So when we first came here, because we've written a lot of scripts for PBS, you know, mm -hmm. documentaries thing. But then we thought we'll go to Hollywood and we'll write some, you know, real um, uh, screenplays. And we wrote four, and one of them we wrote with a friend, a uh, very close friend now. Uh, who is the uh, son-in-law of Larry Gelbart. You know Larry Gelbart? Mm. Yeah, he did MASH. Oh, sure. Yeah, yeah. And a very, very funny writer. And he used to write for Sid Caesar, you know. Yeah. Had all the credentials. And partly because of that, but anyway, we, we got an agent who took us to all the studios. It was just a cliche thing, you know. I mean, we were wonderful and everyone the studios could fully It's, it's like your MI6 experience where yeah. it's like, the the reality is so much like the cliche that it's it's hard yeah, to believe they're not laughing yeah. at themselves. Yeah. And so we went, went around yeah. and and we got a deal, a real deal. And we shook hands with a guy called Sid Field who did um, Midnight Cowboy, oh, you yeah. know, an old time, sure. well seasoned 
Hollywood producer, and we uh, at Nobu actually, what used to be Nobu in Malibu, and we shook hands over dinner, and we thought, finally, we've got we got a deal with Paramount to do the movie. Mm. And then the bad news came because Larry Gelbert didn't like Sid Fields because he had something to do with Judy Garland and they'd had a fight in the 30s <laughs> and so we killed it that was oh, that. and then so we called our agent oh, no. and of course the phone just rang and rang yeah, and yeah. he never talked to us again yeah. he was our best friend yeah. yesterday <laughs> and now we don't exist <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly there's a brutality to it that's that's really striking and we took another movie to Disney, <laughs> I think it was Disney, yeah. anyway, no, Fox, and they loved it, and, and they said, absolutely wonderful, and then silence again, uh, and then a book came out which is based on our screenplay. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Nice. Um, but there's nothing you can do because they have an army of lawyers and yeah. you didn't have the money to, you know. Right. They did, that happened to us three times. Three I have a friend who sold... Uh, uh, the rights to a book that they were going to make a TV show or a movie. Yeah. I don't remember what it was. And I think like they paid $70,000 or something like that. Yeah. And then nothing happened and yeah, it yeah. became clear they weren't going to, the project wasn't working. Uh, so he, he told his lawyer to buy back the rights because he wanted to do something else yeah. with it. Yeah. And the lawyer came back and said, well, they won't sell. He's like, well, that doesn't make sense. I'm offering them their money back, and yeah, they're, yeah. they're not, obviously it has no value to them. Right. Why wouldn't they? Yeah. And the lawyer explained to him that the way things work here is in Hollywood, and is not that, it's not that success is so important, it's that failure is so yes, dreadful. Exactly. Yeah. So if they sold <clears throat> back the rights, and you went with someone else, and they made it happen, and it were successful, then they look really bad. Yeah. But if they don't give you back the rights, they're not going to look bad because nothing's ever going to happen with that right. project. So they'd rather, and $70,000 is nothing for them. Yeah. So they'd rather just let you keep the 70 grand and kill the project rather yeah. than take the risk that it might be successful somewhere else. Yeah, we came across the same thing and as everyone else we got to meet you know, in that world told us the same thing, that the way you keep your job as an executive in a, in a studio is never do anything just don't do anything <laughs> because as soon as you say yeah. yes yeah then you, you could, well, it could, might be the end of your career <laughs> so the safest thing is to turn everything down yeah well that seems to be the way it works and they just keep uh, making these sequels and you yeah, know the yeah. low risk yeah it's yeah. a strange world Anyway, let's let's get back to yes, to yeah. your career, which is so much more interesting <laughs> than uh, talking about Hollywood dysfunction. Um, so you so you finished at uh, Cambridge, and then you went on to the Sorbonne to, to continue yeah. with yeah. Uh, the Arabic studies. Well, I was meant to be doing a PhD on um, comparing French, uh, uh, North African French and Arabic literature, because you know North Africans are sort of bilingual, right. and they had some really good writers. Yeah, but as to was do that, Camus was Camus from. Yeah, he was from Algeria. Algeria, yeah. yeah. He was one of my heroes back then. Uh. Um, so, uh, but then they said to me at Cambridge, but 
you know, the best library is the Sorbonne. So you go, we'll get you, you know, everything was free in those days. Mm. So we got, got me into the Sorbonne and I spent a year in Paris. Mm. Girls. You so spoke many, French. So yeah. many girls. I didn't do oh. anything on my PhD. I think I went twice into yeah. the Sorbonne. So I just <laughs> left. They didn't care at uh, Cambridge, you know. Um, <laughs> but so yeah. that, but it was I had fun. I got my French quite good. And I was brought, taught really, really refined French by, of all people, the Vietnamese, because, you know, mm. um, educated Vietnamese under the French, they spoke. And she corrected my French and she gave me a reading list of what I should be reading. Mm. I'd, I'd, I was reading a lot anyway, but, but she had a lot of obscure French novels and things. So mm. she gave me this course. So that was good. I learned a lot of things, but nothing to do with what my PhD was meant to be about. Right. And were you at this point planning to be a, a scholar, a professor? because no, I realized that, I, I, you can obviously tell, but I'm talking, you know, like jack of all trades, master of none, I, I've jumped from, everything interests me. Mm. So I don't know a great deal about anything, but mm. I know a little bit about lots of things. Um, uh, so what was I going to say? Um, Career. Oh yeah, the, the idea of an academic, you know, concentrating on something smaller and smaller and smaller. But right. you did it obviously very successfully because it became a book, your PhD thesis. Mm. Uh, but most yeah. of them got so narrow, yeah. it was boring. Yeah. I think yeah, the, my, one of my colleagues at university, he, he started a PhD, and his topic was, of all the things in Arabic he could have been doing, was the Arabic accusative. That was it. He spent three years studying the use of the accusative case in Arabic. That was it. Yeah. Because in the Quran, it is misused. It's a big problem because God couldn't have made a mistake. Oh. So they've spent, you know, thirteen hundred years trying to explain why it wasn't a mistake. <laughs> Just the accusative case, and that was it. Yeah. But I didn't want to do something that, yeah. you know, um, minute. So what was your plan? What, what I didn't have one, uh, <laughs> as usual, aside from the French girls. Well, at one point I was a plagiarist, uh, you know. Uh, uh, what is that? Plagiarist? A plagiarist is a, a beach boy uh -huh. uh, in the south of France. I uh -huh. just upped and that was before I went to university actually, but I got so bored in Eastbourne on the south coast because there weren't many girls in the winter. <laughs> and so um, I just left, didn't even tell my parents, I just walked out, I think I was 19, and hitchhiked across France to the south of France mm. in the summer because I loved the sun after being in England. Um, and I thought I would better earn some money. I had ten pounds or four pounds, I think. That's it. And I and I thought, well, I could. I saw somebody, a beach boy, sweeping, you know, cleaning, making the uh, plage, the, the sand look really beautiful, and laying out the deck chairs and all that. And so I started to apply. Went from each place. It was in a place called Joan les Pins. It's mm -hmm. like Cannes or Nice, and beautiful. And I and everyone said, no, 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 no until we got to the very last one. It was a, uh, Chez Claude, Poisson Pêché du Jour, which, you know, uh, fish caught fresh every day at Chez Claude. And he hired me. And I stayed there for four months. Really? 14 hours a day, seven days a what? week. They work you like crazy. And I got up at six o'clock. I didn't have a room. I slept in the woods, at the back of the beach. They, what little shack they gave me. Uh, um, didn't have a bed, I, um, and slept there. And then at six o'clock in the morning, I had to start cleaning the beach to make it look absolutely perfect. You know, 
had to rake it and smooth it. And lay. I had 50, 50 tons there with trans, uh, deck chairs, 50 parasols, a lot of pedalos, you know, those pedal things, mm. and some sailing boats. And I got all that ready before the first clients arrived. And then I had to, you know, bring them all this, this stuff because you had to pay, you have to pay in those places, you know, to go on the beach. Mm. You pay by renting a uh, deck chair, etc. Right. So that was okay for the first few weeks and then I thought, well, this, maybe I really do, should do something. So that, that's what led me to go to university as well. Mm. But I was also interested in Arabic, but it was the combination of seeing if you don't have an education, you're going to be a plagiarist until you're yeah. 30. Cause it's an important experience to have. Well, yeah, I never forgot it. And the the son of Claude was a so-called plagiarist, but and he was a very good-looking guy. So he was a gigolo, I discovered, and he was never there. And he used to come back when I was getting up at six in the morning. He'd come in and ask me to give him a cognac or something, and he went to bed for the rest of the day. So I did his work as well. <laughs> and then the glamour thing was this a glamour thing too. They had all these toilets, you know. Um, which were by the end of the day they were chock full of you know toilet paper and tampons tampons and that was my final job of the day was to collect all this stuff all this garbage and all this bleeding tampons which were all very evocative uh, and put them in a rowing boat and row them out into the ocean that was what you do in france you just dump them in the ocean but at, you know way offshore mm. so that was my last job and in you know rowing into the sunset with shit and tampons <laughs> and i thought so this really is pretty glamorous isn't it <laughs> this is a beautiful sunset yeah. yeah so then i thought well i really maybe should do something yeah so then i did the arabic and i got a first you know summa cum laude because mm. i really like the language yeah so with that and when you do get that, it's very good because your starting salary is higher than anybody else's, and you're always ahead of everyone else. You know, I got a job writing stuff for teaching machines eventually after university, and I even wrote a program, uh, a computer-assisted instruction programming language. I got all tied up in that. You know, this is when you have multi-choice stuff, and you, yeah. uh, we still use it to some extent. But these were teaching machines, and it was sort of like a dead end. And then I read in the paper in England uh, that in Toronto, I didn't know where Toronto was, but in a place called Toronto, uh, there's an institute, the Ontario Institute for Studies in Education, and they're looking for people to program computers for edu you know, educational stuff. And computers, I thought, oh, no, that sounds interesting. And then what was suaded, I just read Understanding Media by Marshall McLuhan. Who was in, in Toronto. Toronto yeah. And that clinched it. I said, I'm, we're going to oh. my first wife. Um, and I took our, took our little two-year-old to Toronto. And uh, almost immediately, as I'd planned, ran into Marshall McLuhan. So I immediately signed up to do another PhD at the University of Toronto. Mm -hmm. And I got him to be my tutor, so we became very close, oh. which was an amazing experience because he was the most intelligent person I've ever met in my life. I mean, beyond belief. Because mm. what he would do, he he had a little coach house at the U of T, uh, and every Monday night he had these sort of seminars when he would invite the leading person in any field you like, name a field. So anthropology, got Margaret Mead. And then he'd have a discussion with her almost an argument, not a discussion, and he would beat her 
every time he'd be you know, all the way through, he mm. thought of things he'd never thought of because mm. he was coming at it from these weird angles. Mm. And we'd watch this, and he always won in a sense, mm. you know. And then he, he got architecture. He got Bucky Fuller came in. Really? So he had oh he, he out talked Buck, Buck Mr. Fuller talking <laughs> about domes, <laughs> and then he got a, the leading brain surgeon in the world to come in, huh. and he could just do it. It was just unbelievable because he was coming at it from angles that nobody had ever thought of before. Right. Not that he. What was really his, What was his training or background? Eighteenth-century literature. Really? Yeah. Huh. And he said that was, it was literature that made him look at ads, for example. He, you know, he wrote the Gutenberg Galaxy and he wrote uh, a book, first of all, about advertising, analyzing uh, advertising. Mm. What's it really doing to us? And then he thought, well, it's, the, it's the, in the medium, the message is irrelevant. It's the medium. So right. That, so that's what fascinated me in England, and that was yeah. enough to bring me across the, the Atlantic. Yeah. Well, that's um, fantastic. Uh, he he was a. I mean, I read. Uh, what was his most famous book? Well, understanding media. Understanding media. Gutenberg yeah. Galaxy is another one. I think that was uh, the one I read. That and that was the one that really sparked things for yeah. me. So, although I wasn't studying, that was my PhD. It had to be something to do with Arabic, but one of the classes I took was obviously with him, and he what did become my advisor, and we all had to. Well, the first thing he said to people, which is kind of scary, you know, these postgraduate people, a lot of quite intelligent young people, he said, if there's anyone in here who hasn't read all of the important works of English literature, you can leave now. <laughs> but he almost literally meant it. I hadn't read all of it. But it was sort of that level, and you thought, oh, God. Yeah. And then everyone had to uh, prepare some presentation to the class and to him. And yeah. um, I thought, oh, God, what am I going to do? And then I thought, well, I'll do the Arabic thing, and that's why I did to him what I just did to you when I read, you know, recited the first surah. We have a helicopter going down the beach here, looking for sharks. Yeah, <laughs> I, I did. That's why I still remember the first chapter of the Quran, because I recited that to him in the class and I analyzed it. Mm. And he got all excited because and I, when I talked about the language, he said, well, of course, the writing system itself is a medium. Mm -hmm. It affects the way you think. So he then said, we're going to shift your PhD topic to uh, uh, comparing three languages. Mandarin, Chinese, I had to study that, but I've forgotten all of it. Um, the writing system of uh, mm -hmm. uh, Mandarin, Chinese, Arabic, and uh, the Roman system, our system. And we're going to analyze how what different effects it has on you. So I was telling you part of that stuff when the I'm writing style or the, 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 the writing, writing itself, technology, the technology, the right, yeah, the actual script, the right. script, how it affects the. So then we became really clear. Yeah, oh, that's when he became my tutor. At that point, he said, yeah. "Well, we we're really going to go with this." Well, yeah. he immediately published the, that as an article, and so that was exciting. Yeah, uh, but then I needed work and I, uh, uh, then, oh yeah, then, then we got really crazy. This was the late 60s by now. Um, and I had a partner, uh, another loony Englishman, um, very bright guy, biologist, and uh, we were at Ontario Institute of Studies in Education and we came up with the idea, was, his name was Anthony, it was more Anthony's than mine, but schools should not be just sort of mono, they should be they, they should be like a continuum, you know, at one end they should be what we call soft, do anything you like, finger mm. painting, or the other end, ultra hard, because people are different. Mm. 
And this hard soft school thing that we wrote about really took off. Made a lot of enemies at Oise because they were serious academics. Mm. We were having the time of our lives. I think we gave a hundred presentations all across America. Really? We were invited even to the uh, education, whatever it's called, in Washington. And then we, we were doing boxes of, of, we did a perception bag full of all sorts of, sort of found things to do with perception, film strips at that time, and smells, we filled it with smells. And that was a perception bag we did. And what we did as soon as we got, meeting all these very serious education experts in Washington, we climbed up on the table in front of them and emptied the bag on their heads. <laughs> and it was the 60s and they, they lapped it up. <laughs> it sounds like uh, the over there the yippies. Uh, it was a yippie, yeah. And then we got a call from the Whole Earth Catalog people oh, yeah. down in Berkeley. Uh, you remember Dave, the Whole Earth Catalog? Sure, yeah. David uh, Brower? Or no, or no, he was the environmentalist. No, yeah, yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. and so we got we, we immediately flew down. Uh -huh. Got Oisey to pay for us to fly down to spend some time in the woods where they were holed up, you know. Right around Monterey, somewhere. Uh, well, in, Big Sur. In, well, it's now Silicon Valley, uh, or very close. To, no, where was it anyway? Palo Alto. Palo Alto. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so we spent time down there, you know, doing all these loony things. And another idea we had, which was really loony, oh, part of the perception. We thought, if your environment change, your environment must change the way you perceive things. Right. So, what if we put um, school, all the school boys and ch children, in a in a some sort of enclosed space and projected? Uh, let's say we we went to the redwoods and we did 360 degree still images, you know, and multiple slide projectors, and we get them to discuss something, while that's being projected, plus the sound of the woods and mm. all of that. And then we'll get them to, or maybe a, you know, a test group or something, to discuss the same subject when you have, have stills from the Arctic surrounding you and so on. Mm. And then we thought, well, how, what can we use as an enclosed space? And we thought immediately, parachutes. You hang a parachute upside down mm -hmm. and they, they crawl into it and you project, on the, you know, the, so you're in 360 degrees. So it's kind of a virtual reality. Yeah, for the up. time, you know, yeah. primitive now, yeah. but uh, then it was a virtual reality showing that people did indeed discuss things differently when the yeah. environment changed. But we had the nerve to go out and buy a thousand parachutes <laughs> <laughs> and we got away with it. It was, it was the 60s, yeah. late 60s. <laughs> Were you involved in the, the sort of consciousness uh, revolution with the no, drugs no. and Timothy Leary no, and all no, that kind of never, stuff? No, we never came across drugs, funnily oh. enough. Oh. My big daughter knew Timothy Leary, but uh, we didn't. Oh, this is much later. But <clears throat> uh, no, they, they didn't appear as well, I was aware of. You know, mm. to drink a lot, but I uh, yeah. didn't. I didn't see any drugs. Yeah, it's interesting. It seems like there there would have been an overlap in your worlds there. Certainly with the whole Earth catalog people. I yeah, think they were probably. But they were very. So they were serious. They were loony and serious at the same. I mean, it was a good idea. Yeah, these catalogs. Yeah, no, it was a great um, idea. And they're very very bright people. Yeah. Um, so that was Stuart Brand. Stuart Brand, exactly. Saying, yes, yeah. Stuart Brand. Yeah. We worked with him and some other people. So yeah. that was very interesting. And this Oise place, Ontario Institute, they let us do all of this and, and we became, that was when it was nice to be a little bit known because we'd write an article and we didn't, they saw, of course people would publish it, you write for the, whatever we wrote they published because yeah. we'd gotten a bit known. Yeah. 
the only time I was a bit known in my life. <laughs> and when did you when did you start writing the books then? Uh, well, then what? Uh, I'm jumping way fast forward. Um, we moved here in '87 from Canada because I had this loony idea we could do something in Hollywood. Mm. Never worked out. Um, but then I started to go back to my old instructional design, you know, um, uh, stuff that I'd done when I began. And so we got gigs going with the U.S. Army. I did a long thing for them. I took their course on weapons of mass destruction and made it interactive so they could look at it on the web. But still, just still pictures and some videos. This was in the uh, early 90s. Mm. And then, so then we worked for the New Jersey State Police. And so I was getting some money at least. Well, doing uh, yeah. the professional uh, writing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, in between, I just skipped 30 years doing PBS television up in Canada and here. Uh -huh. And were you doing mainly science or what? what Everything. That's funny too, because you know, this habit of mine of you know, skipping around, learning a little bit about lots of things. Um, they give you maximum two years. We did a lot of series, 50, mm. sometimes 16 shows long, mm. um, which is usually a two-year thing. So for two years you lived, we did the history of the Middle East. So for two years we soaked ourselves in with historians and lots of consultants on the Middle East. And then because it was public broadcasting, we didn't, in the Canada initially, you don't have to go and beg for money. The right. money is there. So they said, well, now we'd like you to do the, um, computer series and then this was when personal computers were just coming out little the little ones not the yeah. big ones we'd been on before uh, it was the Atari and Apple II things like that um, uh, and so that was in 81 or 82 they just beginning and so that was the most successful series it was a, it sold all over the world because nobody had done it before nobody had explained um, clearly and simply how computers work mm. and that was funny because at one point I did all this with my wife um, uh, at one point we had all them lined up we had about six different of these little tiny portable com you know computers and we didn't know anything about them initially and we spread them all out on a big table at home up in Toronto and then we thought okay let, well let's start playing with them and we couldn't find the on button because <laughs> that was when they didn't have any RAM was it I forget now but you know uh, it, it, when you turn it off, you lost everything. Oh. They were that primitive. Oh, right. So we thought, we better find the on, first of all, the on button anyway. And we couldn't. And our little boy, Pascal, was yeah. two. Uh -huh. And we thought, well, why don't we ask him? <laughs> and he sort of came in and started to crawl all over the thing, <laughs> lick it and play with it. <laughs> and he went round the back and he found them. He found them, well, click, 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 turn yeah. them all on at two. Yeah, yeah. Um, which was amazing and it tied in with what we discovered when we were down in Silicon Valley. We went to the Palo Alto Research Center called Park Xerox and there were a bunch of real genius people there. This was the early 70s, yeah, late 70s. Anyway, at Park they were talk using something called small talk uh, and we'd never seen anything like it. It was so visual. We said, well, how, uh, uh, how do you get, well, how would you get this idea of a, of a little waste basket and the idea of having a mouse that you mm. drag? Mm. They said, oh, that's from two-year-olds. We invited a bunch of two-year-olds in, just as we invited our Pascal in. They had their own bunch of two-year-olds. 
who crawled all over the computers, etc. And they came up with all these ideas. Come here with a little mouse. It was a very childish idea, obviously. And then you drag things, and they go in the little waste paper basket. Mm -hmm. and, we, and I've since thought, and that's how Apple started. Because we didn't know what to do with it. We were blown away when we saw what they were doing there, but they didn't know what they were doing. They thought it was just for academic research. Mm. And we thought, well, this is amazing, because this is so visual. Yeah. But unbeknownst to us, Steve Jobs had been in a few weeks before, and he knew what to do with it. Right. And he'd asked them. He said, can I use this? And they said, sure. And right. So that was Apple. That's how Apple got going. Yeah. He knew. He had the eye, but it, it, it was... All of the, and now, you know, we have all these us grown-ups, we're doing two-year-old things all day long. Yeah. It's a mouse. Come on. It's interesting, you know, <coughs> getting back to McLuhan and the yeah. medium being the message and, and the, 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 the medium containing the, the meaning more than what's written in that medium. I often think about technology in that way. There's a, a guy named Tristan uh, Harris who's a technology ethicist. Oh. And I was listening to him uh, talking about how people say technology is neutral, that it can be used for good or evil and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Not. but he says it's not neutral at all. No. It's designed with very specific purposes. Mm -hmm. And the, the technology that we're dealing with mostly now, uh, social media and these, these yeah. apps on the phone, they're designed as literally as parasites of your attention. Yes. They're designed to not let you turn them off. Yes. And to just suck up because it's the attention economy. And the yeah. more attention they can hold from more people, the more they can sell the ads for. And that's how it all works. Yeah. And so, you know, it, it, it's kind of gone from the medium is the message to the technology is the message now. It's right. the, the design of these machines. Right. Uh, is not neutral at all. It's not like a spear that you can use to to hunt or to you know kill a person. It's yeah, yeah. It, it's something that's designed to hurt us. This and is what what, what um, you know his name Yuval Noah Harari. Have you come across? Oh, he wrote Sapiens, Sapiens yeah, and he's, yeah. I'm just reading. Have you read um, Homo Deus? No, no, I haven't. It's fascinating. He talks a lot about this. Mm, a lot, really about the, the conflict between technology and yeah. humanity. And, w and where it's going you know, as we become, as we merge with computers and so on. But he's a lot of very interesting things he says, mm. really fascinating. Yeah, he's an interesting guy. He's Israeli. Israeli. Yeah. He's a teacher at Tel Aviv University, mm. but really interesting guy. Anyway. So when you were, you know, the, the, I mean, now we're jumping around all right. over the place, but I'm interested. I, I've traveled a lot, and yeah, it sounds so like on you've traveled, yeah, yeah, quite a lot, yeah, yeah. Did you? But you were traveling earlier than me. I, I, have you been to Afghanistan or? No, I've I, I've been to very briefly to Algeria, Egypt, Palestine, or you know, uh, um, the Gulf, Persian Gulf. I did mm. a tour of that about 25 years ago. Uh, and Syria, I mean, but mainly the longest period was Palestine, Palestine and to Persia, to Iran. Oh, yeah. I spent three weeks there when it was still under the Tsar, you know, which was in. I was with a rich family. It was another woman, an older woman, who adopted me, a Persian woman, when she was in England studying English. 
uh, Fakhri, her name was, and Fakhri um, sort of took me under her wing in England, and then when she heard I was out in, in the Arab world, she said, well, come and spend your last three weeks with us. Mm. And they had a rich family, friends of the Shah, all that. So that was what an idyllic life. But the chauffeur of their car slept under the car. That was his room, under the car. And many people slept literally in holes in the ground. I mean, the poverty was beyond belief, and the, the riches were beyond belief. Yeah. Talk about inequality. I'd never seen inequality like that hmm. before. And no wonder there was a revolution. Yeah. <laughs> Awful as it turned out in many ways. But, yeah. but I, I was just lucky. I lived with a blessed people. It must be a beautiful country. Very beautiful, yeah. 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 And they had, like every other rich family, they had a place out in the desert. And I remember thinking about Makayam, you know, we was there with a, with a loaf of bread and wine and thou. Mm. And we lived that. It was just we were out in the desert with a loaf of bread because everyone drank. And they tried to give me hashish all the time, but my eldest sister said, "No, don't let him do it." Really? <laughs> yeah. 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 So, but they were lo they're lovely people. I still like Persians. They call it, they call themselves, particularly the men, um, Baba June. June means darling, and Baba just means Baba, father. Yeah. I mean, we bun we bumped into a. A Persian the other night, the other day in the valley, actually looking for some something to fix the some equipment in the kitchen. And I said, "Oh, you're from Persia," and I said, I started calling Babajun, and you know, you want to kiss me, and <laughs> <laughs> and we talked about uh, these poor people who don't know how to bargain. You know, we used to play games in Jerusalem. I would dress up in Arab clothes and go into the souk, you know, the bazaar, the old old city, and sell stuff to tourists. Oh, really? <laughs> and we always laughed, but also got annoyed because if you don't bargain, they really don't like you. You've you've ruined their day. Yeah. You know, and they have all these games that you you make your offer. You know, for a hundred dinar for this carpet, and then they say you can insult me, and yeah. they and then but you say you're insulting me, and you walk out, and at the last minute they come and drag you back in again, and they yeah. love that. Yeah. And eventually you get it for ten. Days, you know, yeah. <laughs> and it's yeah. worth five, but. It's the game that they like more than anything else. Mm. If you don't play the game, they don't like you very much. It's it's very difficult. I, I learned to bargain in uh, in markets around yeah, the world. Always, but it know, became hard. It, it's 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 still you know it's a very because as you know and from our perspective it's insulting. Yeah, not to, to question the price. It's yeah, like for us, you're yes, assuming yeah. that they're yeah. being dishonest with you, but yeah. It's, uh, they are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they, they, they assume you know that. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's all very anyway. funny. Did you ever get to India? No, so that was the furthest east I've been. I've mm. spent quite a long time in Greece. I really love Greece, but yeah, Greece uh, and, a bit in Italy. A lot of time in France. And my first wife was German, so I used to go over to, from England. Yeah. Um, uh, to, over to Germany we'd go because it was, and she worked for an airline, so we could fly for nothing in an hour from London to um, to Germany. Mm. So my that's when I started to learn German properly. Yeah. I mean, again, you speak German as well. How yeah, many languages? That's it. But they're very it's very rusty. It. I'm ashamed of my German. <laughs> so wait, English, French, Arabic, German. At some German. point, yeah. At some point, I went to the Goethe Institute in uh -huh. London, where they do wonderful free courses uh -huh. in German. Yeah. Uh, 
yeah, I can't resist if, as they always said, uh, ad, uh, ad nauseum to people, you can only learn a language when you're horizontal. You can't do it vertically. <laughs> You've yeah. got to have a lover. Yeah, yeah. If you have a lover, you'll learn so far. Uh, who's willing to, you know. And who doesn't speak your language. That I went ideal, to Spain yes. thinking I would learn Spanish. Yeah. And I, I met a beautiful woman and was with her for six years, but she spoke English quite well. Yeah. So her English got a lot better and my Spanish went nowhere. Right, yeah. And then, and, and I would try, we moved to San Francisco together uh, after a few years in Barcelona. And, you know, I would say to her, like, come on, let's speak Spanish. You know, I, need, yeah, I don't yeah. want to lose what, right, I, what right, I have. Right. And, oh, no, I know you in English. And one time we were, we were making love and I said something to her in Spanish and she totally freaked out. She didn't like it. Either. No, she didn't like it at all. She, that was exactly like my German wife. She has gotten to spoke, speak really good English and she would never speak to me in German. In German. But when I went to see her parents, a wonderful, it's another contradiction. One of them was a Nazi, was a member of the Nazi, had been a member of the Nazi party, but was the nicest man I've ever met. Mm. And he loves the English. <laughs> and we get, we'd go out and get drunk every night in the, in the Kneipe, the pub. Um, so then I learned, I learned German from them. Yeah. But not from my, the, my wife. No, that was really frustrating because that's why I went to the Goethe Institute. I just had to get some help with German. In, yeah. In, in a way. I, uh, I was talking to a, a woman recently who's a, a porn star. Uh, oh, yes. I was going to talk to you about that because I have some close friends who are big, big time porn people. Oh, really? Really fascinating. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Keep well, going. <laughs> she, she's Japanese American. Right. And uh, when she told her parents what she was doing, mm. they said, well, that's fine, just as long as you never speak Japanese in one of these movies. Oh. So for them, my understanding of it is that for them, she, her identity is really tied to the language she's speaking. Yeah. So they know her in Japanese. Yeah. What she does in English doesn't concern them. Yes, but if you if yeah. you speak Japanese, then you bring shame on the family, and yeah. you know. Yeah. So the, the whole language, and I got into this with my Spanish girlfriend at the time. I was very struck by how uncomfortable she was to hear me speak Spanish when we were in an intimate situation. Yeah. And we talked about that, and you know, I started getting the sense that that um, identity is really formed by language that I saw in the, yes, exactly. the moment I remember was she was on the phone and she was speaking with her parents right. and they were back in Barcelona and her father spoke Catalan yeah. and her mother was French. Right. Uh, she grew up speaking French with her mother, Catalan with her father, Spanish uh, with her friends right. and they, her parents spoke Spanish to each right. other. And then she lived in the States when she was like 12 or 13 so she spoke English very well. and. So I watched her speaking Catalan with her father, and then her mother got on the phone and she was speaking French with her mother, and then she said something to me in English, and then she went back. Mm. And I, I realized that this, her name was Peggy, and her, it wasn't Peggy speaking Catalan, Peggy speaking French. Peggy, no, no. It was exactly. French Peggy, Catalan exactly. Peggy, yeah. English Peggy. Yeah. And then I, I, I was in graduate school at the time, I started looking into multiple personality disorder. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And I read that, Sometimes when people are in the 
possession of these different personalities, there are physiological states yeah. that correspond. Right. Yeah. So when they're in this personality, their heart rate, their base heart rate is higher, mm -hmm. their blood pressure is different. In some cases, even their ocular pressure changes. So oh, one personality yeah. needs glasses to read right. and the other doesn't. And so then oh. I had this idea, like what if I could demonstrate that there were sort of signature baseline physiological states that corresponded to these different languages right. that people spoke from yeah. a very young age. So then you would be demonstrating essentially that the language was reconfiguring the brain. Yeah. That it's not just you speaking different languages, it's different yous. Yes, exactly. There's different languages. Because, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with UCLA research on people, brain damaged people, you know, when they're doing sort of open brain surgery. Oh. And there was one bilingual guy, English Spanish. And they found they could turn off his Spanish. He could only understand English or reverse that to really? his English because it's a different part of the brain. Wow. Literally, physically, they've identified. So is it, it all ties in with what you're saying. Yeah. It's a, a different part of the brain. Huh. So tell me about your porn friends. Oh, yeah. Uh, his name is Humphrey. He's a South African. He writes, too, by some really interesting things. And I edit mm. all his books. Um, he married a, a woman called Sue, an English woman, who used to be really, really beautiful. And she was a photographer, and she got into nude photography, taking the pictures. And he loved that too, obviously, who doesn't? Um, uh, and then, so they started this sort of empire, and they were working happily. It's a good story. I shouldn't give his book away, but they were working happily in the porn world, you know, with uh, the guy who runs Playboy and Hustler. Um, and then a terrible scandal hit, a real, this is a real life scandal, that their star, a girl called Blue, um, who was a really interesting character, uh, they discovered was 15 years old. Oh. And they'd taken in all these videos, all these, and so people lost a fortune. But it also meant they broke off from um, you know, the Playboy guy and the Hustler guy. And anyway, he's written a book about this. It's very interesting. Mm. Uh, but it, they're such sweet people, you know, when you think in, in a sort of superficial way about porn. Isn't it? Yeah. Well, and first of all, I've heard this also from other people. There's, there's nothing as cozy and kind and gentle as a porn um, set mm. you know, when they're shooting much nicer than a non-porn <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of uh, kind uh, to support each other. and yeah, compassion. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I've been on a few porn sets. In fact, I, um, I won uh, an award, a porn Oscar, oh. for best non-sex performance. Oh, really? <laughs> That's wonderful. <laughs> I have a statue in my apartment with That's it, yeah. Cool. You should, if you ever have any time, you know, you should meet Humphrey and Sue. They're charming. They've got a place up in, uh, not not far from Topanga, actually. Oh, really? Do you live in Topanga I all do, the time? yeah, yeah. Um, and we, they invite us to dinner almost every week, and they're just wonderful yeah, people. And they always say, it's a beautiful house, and they say, this is the house that Porn built. <laughs> <laughs> Well, listen, I've, I've taken up uh, oh. almost an hour and a half of your oh, time. Oh, right, really? I'm sorry. No, it's, it's, it's I, I love it. It's, it's very kind of you to make time. Uh, maybe I'll see you in Topanga in the house that Porn built. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Thank you very much. Thank uh, you. Your, your books are all available on Amazon. Yes, yes. Uh, just search David Stansfield. David Stansfield, that's right. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah.
All thank right. you. Thank you. Cool guy, huh? I, I really enjoyed meeting him. And I do hope to see him in the House of the Porn Built. Interestingly, sort of coincidentally, uh, I have recently arranged to do a podcast with Holly Randall, who is the daughter of the couple that David is speaking of there. And I didn't realize until I was just listening to this this morning, putting this together, that uh, the people he was describing are Holly Randall's parents, Suze Randall and Humphrey. I think Humphrey Randall, I'm not sure what his, if he has the same last name. Uh, and I listened to Holly's podcast on the recommendation of someone, I don't remember, a friend um, highly recommended listening to the first episode of her podcast in which she interviews her parents. I listened to that when I was driving down from San Francisco a few weeks ago. So strangely, I, I spent a couple of hours with those people and they sound great. I hope I do get to meet them. They sound really wonderful. So I'm going to meet their daughter. Uh, I think next week I'm doing her podcast, Holly Randall. She's also, um, she's a photographer and I think she directs movies as well, um, erotic stuff, but I know at least she's a photographer, Holly Randall. Check out the first episode of her podcast. Her parents are great. Anyway, uh, there are various ways you can support the podcast on patreon.com. If uh, you can afford it and you have a credit card, throw a few bucks into the kitty. That's very helpful. Um, also, reviews on iTunes are very helpful. People read them and uh, decide whether or not to give it a shot. Intro music is by Basin and Range. The song is called Bright Side of the Sun. You can hear their music at basinandrangeband.com. There's a Reddit conversation about episodes. Uh, I drop in there and answer questions. Uh, just search for Tangentially Speaking on Reddit. There's also um, a, a group where local groups can uh, meet. There's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Go there and find out uh, how you can get in touch with Tangentially Speaking listeners in your area. And don't forget to order your shirts from my mother. Uh, you'll see them. If you go to tangentiallyspeaking.com, you'll see a, a button for store at the top. And there are a bunch of shirts and a lot of them that are um, taking up a lot of space in the garage. We've cut the price way down. Um, they're all basically we're selling them uh, at cost, but the, some of them we're selling them below that just to open up space. So there are tangentially speaking shirts and paleo modern shirts and some hoodies that are way discounted and I think the most expensive t-shirts are 20 bucks so uh and the others are down to like eight bucks so uh, if you have quirky taste you might find real bargains there and of course you can order stuff from shoredesigntshirts.com and the discount code is ctd that's civilized to death ctd you get 20 percent off all right and I'm going to play you out, as always, with a song called Smoke Alarm by the wonderful Carsey Blanton. Uh, you can check her out at carseyblanton.com, of course. Here's to you, Bennett and Justin. Catch you next time. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you 
because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground. 